Good morning. How are we doing? I see a lot of people decided they looked out their window this morning and said, yeah, I'm going to take a mulligan today. Not going to come to church. Well, they're going to miss out. So you guys will be really glad that, that you were here. I noticed that these front two rows are really empty, too. I just want you guys to know that we really do welcome you up in the front uh, during worship. Promise I won't bite standing up there. I thought about begging the message today and just saying, eh, we just need to pray for everybody that's emotionally traumatized from the snow. It's probably what our, our service should be this morning. Pray for the flowers and all the plants and all that. Yeah. Uh, there was some deer walking through my backyard this morning. I noticed as I was getting my cup of coffee, and man, they were just like, oh, across the backyard. They just looked depressed themselves. It was, it was rough. Um, where to begin this morning? Why don't, we, why don't we just take a minute and evaluate? Where are you at? What's the condition of your mind this morning? What's the condition of your heart, your soul, your emotions, the, the parts of you that I can't see this morning that are invisible? How are you doing today? Let's take a moment and think about it and, and think about, I just sometimes I have these moments where I'm like, God, I'm really desperate for something from you. I'm in need I am a broken person. It might be big issues. It might be little issues. But I need you somehow to meet me and change me and lead me and teach me and help me. Be my help. Just think this morning, is there something inside of you that's desperate for something from God? Saying that song this morning, the... You know, and Jason did a great job too, you know, following up with that. Like, there's just something that in us should leap at the understanding that the Lion of Judah made himself a lamb on our behalf and paid a price and made a way for us to experience transformation through him. And once in a while, when I'm worshiping or I'm praying or I'm preparing a message and I'm going about my day to day, Throughout the week, I kind of get numb to the reality of what God has actually done for me. And I forget until I have a moment where I reflect and I think about how I'm really doing and where my mind is really at and where my emotions really are. And I kind of go, God, I need you. Be the lion for me today. Be the one that fights my battle. Be the one that so gently forgives me and brings grace into my life today. If you, I'm just going to ask you to take a little bit of a risk here. If you, if you really, if there's something in your spirit that's just, I really need from God today, would you be willing to lift your hand this morning? I am in need from God today. My heart needs something. My emotions need something. My mind needs something, a touch from God. And I just pray right now, Father, that, you know, however the word goes today and Whatever is spoken, whatever you bring to share, Father, whatever it is, Lord, we know that your word goes out and it does something transformational in our lives. And I pray now, Lord, that your spirit would move in power for those that in faith have reached up and said, I'm in need of you. I'm in need of something from you today, God. God, you respond to acts of faith. And I pray that you would respond to the action that people have have given today and saying, God, I need a touch from you today. So, Father, I pray that you would move in power through your scripture today. That your spirit would bring in comfort and victory in the lives of the people that are reaching out to you today. And, Lord, I pray that you would lead us through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. God's good to us, you guys. Would you um, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15? Let me talking this week and possibly in the weeks ahead out of John 15. It's a great passages of scripture there and some great understanding. It's just fundamental uh, in our in our knowledge of God. John chapter 15. I'm going to read to you first this morning verses 1 through 11 and we'll just see how far we get and where God takes us today. 
This is Jesus, and he's teaching. And he says these amazing words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Last week, we took some time to celebrate Jesus and what He's done for us as the cornerstone of our faith. We reminded last week that We really wouldn't have the faith we do today if Christ hadn't done what he did on that amazing uh, number of days all those years ago in rescuing us. We drew our attention to the idea that he's he's the cornerstone of what we believe. When Jesus died and he rose again, there's a number of things that, that in that transaction that takes place that affect us so much today. He became the high priest. He became the one that oversees the whole of our faith. So he's the high priest before God. He's interceding for you before the Father. Isn't it kind of comforting knowing that Jesus is interceding for you? I don't know if I would want anyone else more in my corner than that. He becomes the head of the church. He says he will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He's the head. He's the boss. He's the chief. He was the firstborn from among the dead. That's an interesting phrase. Try that one out in a public arena sometime. What does it mean, though? He rose from the dead as, some, as sort of a first fruits of all of us that will someday rise and experience a body like he experienced in that moment. Fun thing to study. He became the source of our, of our uh, salvation. Our redemption, He rescued us. He reconciled us back to our Father, the one who made us, who fashioned us, who has a design for our lives, and He reconciles us back to our Father. He was restored to the glory He had before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Jesus said that in His prayer. You know, I'm coming back to you, God, that I may enjoy the glory you gave me before the foundation of the world. Interesting thought about Jesus. This is somebody that you want to have a relationship with. This is somebody that you want to have in your corner. Very first statement in 15 chapter 1, I am the true vine. Jesus warned us, as does Paul, that there would be many false Christs, false saviors. And a lot of times I think we automatically think of those things as humans, people that have arisen as leaders in faith that lead massive groups of people away from the Scripture and away from the message of Christ. But there are lots of other vines that we end up attaching ourselves to as though they're the source of our life that aren't the true vine. Who is the true vine? Jesus is making a powerful declaration here. I am the true vine. I am going to be the one that holds it together. I'm going to be the one that you want to be attached to. I'm the source. 
the father. He's the vine dresser. He's the one that evaluates and he prunes and he removes and he adjusts. Really, you know, we, we believe that you know, Jesus was in the Father and the Father was in Jesus and the Holy Spirit was in them and we have this concept of the Trinity, three and one yet separate. It's very, very hard to get our minds around sometimes, but you know, in a lot of ways we can look at the Father as the, the head of God, the authority of God, the will of God. And the Father, Jesus describes Him as the vine dresser. And then you and I are the branches. You and I are the ones that are attached to the vine. You and I are the ones that are growing out. You and I are the ones that are producing fruit for this kingdom that we're a part of. We all have a part to play in this great imagery that Jesus uses to help us understand the nature of our relationship with Him and our relationship with the Father. We're extensions of Him. Isn't, isn't a branch or a, a, from a vine or a tree, isn't it really still the tree? I would consider it so. If, if, is a branch separate from the tree? It kind of is, but isn't it the tree? Yeah, it is. So we go back to this idea of the Trinity and how sometimes it's hard to understand what it means for the Son to be in the Father and the Father in the Son. But you also are in Christ. You also are in the Father. By, by your relationship to Christ, you are connected to Him and a part of Him, an extension of Him. The branch is part of the vine, reaching out and doing something as part of the whole life of the plant. Of course, we get into some uncomfortable passages here. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I don't want to dive very much into verse 3 here. It's a whole subject in and of itself. It's really actually pretty interesting if that this one lone thing in here where Jesus says, you're clean because of the word I spoke to you. Like, What does that mean? And yet what other things we know about the scripture, we know about the word of God, when the word of God come, comes, it does work. The word of God isn't just language, it's power. And so when, when God speaks, it brings change and it brings transformation. It's how we came to be saved. We heard the gospel and something in us laid hold of it and we're transformed. There's a cleansing that comes, Romans talks about in the Word. So there's a whole thing there we're not going to dive very far into today, except to draw to your attention to how powerful the words from God are, which brings a lot of importance to these scriptures that you have today. Maybe they weren't spoken in English all those years ago, but they give us an understanding of what proceeded from the mouth of God, the will of God going out in communication to mankind. There's something powerful in that. It's not just average everyday communication there's life in these words he talks about this idea of every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and every branch that does is pruned one of the things that can be uncomfortable about our faith and our walk with god is there isn't there is evaluation we don't like that idea we don't want to be evaluated. Maybe even when I asked you the question this morning about taking a look at yourself and evaluating where you're at and reflecting on how you feel, that can be uncomfortable because we don't always like what we see. And we don't always like what we feel. And we're not necessarily always okay with it. And if God starts really looking in on our lives, we really get uncomfortable with it because we become aware of how frail and weak and all our little failures and things like that. So we don't like the idea that God would come into our lives and evaluate our fruitfulness. But he does. It's a good thing he's full of grace too, isn't it? There's an evaluation going on. And God does something with that evaluation. He looks at it. He's looking for fruit. He looks at our lives and he wants to see growth and development and a direction moving towards fruitfulness. Now we can react in a couple different ways towards this. Of course, there's the, the, the negative side of things where uh, we can just become apathetic and so self-condemning that we do nothing. That's it. I'm a cut-off branch. All I'm good for is being thrown in the fire and burned. That's it. I give up. I'll never be good enough for God, which is a wrong thinking in and of itself. There is always, when we're wrestling with our, ourselves and evaluation whether or not we're producing fruit, we can always go the condemnation side and begin to evaluate ourselves without grace. Not taking the whole of the Word of God into uh, account. And understanding that there is forgiveness, that we are in process. 
that God leads us. But then there's the pruning part. Maybe it's been a long, tough season. God's been doing painful things in you. I'm not the only one that God does painful things in, right? Sometimes when we go through the difficulties of life and we're challenged by our circumstances or the things that happen, we think that somehow our sin or our mistakes are always to blame. Sometimes the difficult things in life are God's instruments to shape us, to prune us, to cut us back a little bit in some areas and make us more fruitful. <coughs> God, he, he, He's so good in that He leads us. The Scripture teaches us that we're all gifted differently. That there's a variety of gifts. That those gifts are meant to manifest amongst us. That's what fruit is. It's a manifestation of something that's going on that the plant has been doing. plant has been working on fruit for a long time before you see the fruit, right? Our lives are a lot like that. And all of us have a part to play in that. And some, some of you are really gifted in some areas and really not in other areas. And what does God do? He prunes us in the areas where there's fruitfulness that we might become more fruitful. And then we look at some of those areas and we're like, hey, I'm, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not gifted that way. I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be that way. And sometimes we, we wrestle with those things. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, maybe I'm, I'm really hospitable and I'm very much a people person and I love encouraging people and strengthening them. But, man, I, I do not want to have to lead worship. I would not be a good worship leader. I would not be a good preacher. Or I don't want to have to teach something difficult from the Scripture. Or vice versa. It's like, man, I would, <clears throat> I would rather stand up here with my guitar and lead worship than have to be navigating some difficult circumstance with somebody, helping them pastor them through it. We're all different. We're all called to different things. And the things that we're good at and the things that we're fruitful in, God will continue to develop us in those things. And he'll prune back some of the things out of our life that we're not particularly good at. Pruning is painful sometimes. And we're experiencing that change and those adjustments from God. We're all always being pruned, cut back. Sometimes it's painful. But there's a purpose in mind. This is what we have to keep in front of us when we're going through the difficult things in life. There's an end in mind. God's ultimate will is for fruitfulness in your life. That there would be things developing from your life that are benefiting the world around you. Fruit is good. Actually, at the wedding, we just did a wedding on Friday. McKinley and Victoria got married. For those of you that know them, we did the wedding right here. But there was something on, on, in the food that I'd never seen before. And it was pieces of cantaloupe wrapped in meat. That's awesome. That's the best kind of fruit right there. It was prosciutto, I think, wrapped in cantaloupe. I'm like, that's awesome. That's like wrapping bacon in bacon, right? You know, it's like, hmm. Only I felt healthier after eating it, right? Fruit is good. That's really what fruit represents. These good things. It looks good. It tastes good. It's good for the world. Fruit is. Fruit encourages. Fruit ensures the reproduction of the plant. That whatever happened and grew up in a generation that bears fruit goes on to the next generation to ensure its survival and development. Fruit's important. God is looking for fruit in our lives and He evaluates. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. What does abide mean? It's to remain to bear patiently. Some of you are abiding in some of your relationships. You're bearing patiently or tolerate. To endure without yielding is what Christ has called us to do with Him, to abide with Him, to endure with Him without yielding, to wait, to accept without rejection, to remain stable or fixed, to continue in one place. Christ has called us to abide in Him, to remain in Him. In this illustration of the vine and the branches, we draw some understanding about the nature of salvation and the nature of our relationship with God. Now this finds its way into my messages a lot, and I want to tell you why. Because I think sometimes our ways of approaching things in Christianity produce unintended consequences. And sometimes when we treat salvation 
as if it's walking by Jesus and giving him a high five and we're good for the rest of our lives. We produce immature plants, those that are choked out easily and quickly. Our salvation isn't just a momentary experience where we hear an emotional message and we respond. That's part of it. But salvation is much more than that. Our relationship with God is much more than that. You know what grafting is? Tree grafting or plant grafting? I found out this week you can graft a tomato plant and a potato plant together and the roots will produce potatoes and the top produces tomatoes. They do that through grafting. They'll take a root system of a plant and they'll cut it off and they'll take the top of a different plant and attach it and like duct tape it on there or something and then it starts to grow together. The tissue of the plant starts to intertwine and the root system starts to feed the top plant. This is amazing. They do it in, in uh, agriculture when it comes to fruit trees. They, they want to produce as much fruit as in as small of area as possible. So they'll take a, a root system of a plant that's kind of a, a dwarf type plant and they'll take like an apple tree and just glue it to it kind of thing. And it will take on some of the DNA of the root system which will dwarf the plant but it will produce just as much fruit as it would if it were twice the size. So an apple, and I'll just use the apple tree as an example. I have no idea if they do it with apples. But if it grows like, I don't know, 25 feet tall and 20 feet wide normally, but you cut that tree off when it's young and hook it up with a dwarf-type tree root system, you'll get the same amount of fruit in a tree half the size. What's really fascinating is the reason they do that is when you take that tree, you can do it with branches. You could take multicolored trees, flowering trees, and take like a, the purple flower branch and stick it on this side and the white flower branch and stick it on this side, and that tree will produce two different colors of flowers. How does that happen? When, you, when that branch attaches to that tree trunk and, the, and the, the fibers of the tree start to grow together, that branch starts to draw nutrients starts to draw the water, starts to draw even DNA kind of character traits from the root system it attached to. See where I'm going? This is what life is when we find Christ. We're like a branch that needs a vine. We're like a branch that's attached to a lot of unhealthy vines. And we're drawing our life from the wrong sources. We're drawing our identity from unhealthy places from an unhealthy past, from unhealthy relationships, from addictions that we might have. We're attached to all these things and we're drawing our DNA, we're drawing our identity, or we're drawing our nutrition. And that root system will determine the way that branch grows and what it produces. But when we meet Christ and we submit ourselves to Him, we are grafted in. He makes room on the vine and he attaches you to it and your existence begins to intertwine with that source of life, that root system, and he begins to feed you his DNA, his nutrition, the water that you need, and you begin to transform based on that root system that you attach to. This is a fantastic illustration that Jesus uses, but this is what it tells us about salvation. You don't just brush up against the true vine and go on with your life to produce fruit. You attach. You attach. Your life becomes intertwined with Jesus. He becomes the source of your life. He becomes the source of your wisdom, your decisions, your attitude, the way you parent, the way you stay married, the way you minister to other people, the way you treat your coworkers, your existence begins to change because you grafted in with the true vine. I love the imagery that Jesus uses here. And he calls us to abide. Remain there. Remain there. And my father comes and he inspects and he looks at, looks at life and he prunes back here and there and he makes adjustments here and there that we might become more fruitful because there is an expectation of fruit. 
Wrestling with concepts of salvation is so important because we become the ambassadors of that message to the world around us. We are carrying, hey, look, we're, we're carrying this message that I grafted into Christ and it's changing my life. And I'm bringing that message to the world around me. But if I don't actually understand that message, I don't have a lot to bring. So we should wrestle with these ideas of, how am I saved? What does it mean to be saved? Was it just because I gave Jesus a high five one time in a service and went on with my life? Just a momentary one-time encounter and that's it? Or is it that I got grafted into something and changed? Jesus talks a lot. Jesus says some things while he's here. They kind of mess with us a little bit when it comes to the concepts of salvation. When you think of people getting saved today, you probably, whatever tradition you grew up in, probably shapes the way you understand salvation. How is it that a person is saved? How do I lead somebody to Christ? How is that done? And we have lots of concepts out there, and Jesus messes with us even further with some of the things that he does while he's here. There's a story of a paralytic that's they're trying to get this paralyzed guy to Jesus so he can get healed so much so they climb on a roof and remove the tiles and lower him down through the roof so that Jesus can minister to him and Jesus says something crazy he says he's in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus saw their faith saw their what what did he see oh you can see faith interesting that messed with you a little bit and he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Okay, first of all, I don't want to rabbit hole down here. It's a passionate subject for me. But it's the idea that faith is not visible without something attached to it. When, when something is manifest into our reality, it illuminates where there has been faith. I can tell you I have faith all day long. If my actions don't show that, you have no reason to believe me. None whatsoever. And Jesus behaved this way. I can't think of any examples. I didn't dig in depth, but I couldn't find any examples in the Scripture where Jesus identifies faith where there is no action. I don't find that anywhere. These guys climb on the roof and they lower their buddy down, and Jesus responds to their act of faith. How did he forgive this? How did this guy find forgiveness? He obviously didn't go through one of our amazing Sunday morning services and respond to the emotional message, did he? Somehow they had heard that Jesus heals. Somehow they knew and they took action based on that knowledge. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. We don't even know if that's what he asked for. The guy just wanted to be healed. What does Jesus do? He forgives his sin based on their faith. That's interesting. How about the woman that anoints Jesus' feet? I think it's in three different, three separate Gospels. I'm just looking in Luke today, chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. So the woman comes in. Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, and she weeps at his feet, washes his feet, pours expensive stuff on him. You know, there's several versions of the story out there. And, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. She goes in and does this act of faith. She's believing something about the Christ. She knows, she feels like she's come to some sort of understanding. We don't know what her story is really or why she ended up understanding what she did. But she goes in there and does this amazing act to Jesus. And his response to her is, your sins are forgiven. Kind of messes with my soteriology a little bit. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he goes so far, Jesus, as to say this. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How was this woman saved? I don't know. I mean, we could establish a doctrine where, you know, everybody that washes somebody else's feet with expensive perfume or with their tears and hair gets saved. We would do that, wouldn't we? I mean, we read this story. We don't even think like that now. But we behave that way in a lot of ways. How do our people saved? Well, you got to wash Jesus' feet with your hair and tears. That's how you get saved. How do I get my sins forgiven? Well, somebody has to lower you from a hole in the roof. So Jesus can notice, and that's how you get forgiven. Oh, wait, but there's more stories. How about Zacchaeus? I want to sing the song, and I'm just not going to. Okay, just not going to. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. 
He was a short guy. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors mainly made their income off of, not embezzlement necessarily, but they'd skim some extra money in order to make a living, so they weren't very well liked. Zacchaeus was a short man, and he wanted to see Jesus, and he couldn't. So he climbed the tree. How do you get saved? Well, you have to climb a tree to see Jesus. And then he'll tell you that he'll come to your house that day. And Jesus says that, man, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And Jesus goes and he dines with him. And Zacchaeus is like, I'll give back everything that I've stolen, basically. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. What? You mean all I got to do is give some money or climb a tree and I'll be saved? Is that how we're saved? Okay, so far we've got lowering from the ceiling, uh, like I'm paralyzed. I've got, uh, I got to climb a tree. I got to give some money away. I got to um, wash Jesus' feet, which is unfortunate because he's not here right now. How am I ever going to be saved? How about in three gospels it records the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man that comes to Jesus and says, what must I do for eternal life? Or what must I do to be saved? Jesus gives him some general answers about you know, being a good person, you know, obey the laws, this and that. He's like, well, I've done all these. And then Jesus looks a little deeper and goes, go and give everything you have to the poor. And the man goes away so disappointed because he was very wealthy. This was a very difficult task for him. We don't know if he did or didn't or what his situation was. So Jesus gave a different answer yet again, similar to Zacchaeus's, I guess. This guy wants to know how to get saved. What's Jesus' answer? Give away everything you own. Okay, so far we got four ways we can get saved. Hey, we're getting a list going. This is good. How about the lawyer challenging Jesus about how to inherit eternal life? Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Because that's what lawyers do. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, this question. Isn't it interesting that it's just human nature that there's something inside of us that wants forgiveness and eternal life and understanding that it doesn't just end here. He put eternity in the hearts of men. And he said to him, what is written in the law? This is Jesus talking to the lawyer. How do you read it? It's <laughs> interesting thought there. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Oh, man. What is salvation? Is there any, how do we identify whether or not we've done something that makes us saved? I prayed the prayer one time. I, I did the communion thing. I went through confirmation. I, whatever, fill in the blank. You did the things to be saved. And this is the interesting thing about it. God, God's, he's, he knows us. He won't let us get into little patterns that we do every single time with every single person in order to prove something. He won't let that happen because our nature is that we would just become legalistic and religious about our processes. But every time he introduces something different, it's personal. Salvation is personal. It's people coming to an understanding of the truth and doing something about it. Whether that be responding to a message or whatever it is, there's a lot of ways in which people are saved. The real issue is that they come to faith. They come to believe something to be true, and they take action based on that. Are you saying then that, Jr. are you saying that those works are what saves me? No, your faith is what saves you. Your belief in Christ is what saves you. We have this real, like, almost like we're allergic to works, particularly in our type of church world that, that we operate in, a Protestant, charismatic kind of thing. Uh, no, no works. Don't do works. Your works are hugely important in the big scheme of things. We're not saved because we did them. We do them because we're saved. Because we came to some understanding that was true. The woman that wept at Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair obviously was feeling something powerful and compelling that prompted her to action. She grafted in. She, she attached to the source of life and began to transform because of that, that, that connection, that relationship. 
that understanding, all of those things coming together prompted her to action, and Jesus recognized it as faith. The idea of abiding contradicts our microwave Christianity thoughts. It's, it's a journey. It's lifelong. It's constant development, pruning, fruitfulness, long-term relationship. It takes a while if you oh, cut off the side of a, cut a branch off a tree and try and graft another one on. It doesn't just wake up the next day completely identifying with that trunk. It takes time. But this is really what salvation is. It's relationship with Christ. And relationships aren't just a moment in time. They're a journey. Matthew chapter 7. I refer to this story regularly because it was very sobering and a little uncomfortable. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who, what's that word? Does. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of a day of judgment, a day in the culmination of time when things are being evaluated for the long, for the long haul, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he will and then will I declare to them, I never, what? Never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Gosh, that's uncomfortable. Strikes a little bit of fear in me. But what is the, what's the linchpin here? I never knew you. The source of our salvation is that true vine, that relationship with Him. That's where our salvation comes from. It's not in all the works that we do. Like, we can have, you know, people in our day and age will stand before Him that, you know, didn't we have the most amazing worship and services in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff? But what's the linchpin there? That He knows us that we relate. If we need a touch from God today, if we need victory in our lives, if we need breakthrough, if we're, if we're in that need, we need to realize it's a relational connection that we draw from God for life, that we might experience the breakthrough we need. It's in knowing Him, having relationship with Him. Natural result, just a simple natural result of healthy relationship is healthy fruit. I told you we did a wedding just a couple nights ago, and it's always one of the things that I like to mention in the message is that the idea that you do reap what you sow, whatever you're sowing into, in this case it was a marriage, whatever you sow into your marriage, you will reap it. Do you want deep, Meaningful, connected, loving, enduring marriage? Then sow into it that way. By giving of yourself. By laying down your life. By following godly principles of relationship. And you will reap what you sow in time. If you sow in selfishness. If you sow in, this is about me. It's about my needs being met. It's about me being on this emotional high now for the next 50 years. We're sowing in selfishness. We're sowing with misunderstanding about what love really is. And we will reap that. But the, the Scripture and Christ's teaching teach us what healthy relationships are like. They're sacrificial in nature. Jesus was committed to us. We're committed to Him. Jesus sacrificed for us. We sacrifice for one another. Jesus sows into our lives. We sow into the lives of one another. This is the dynamic that He wants amongst His church. This is why unity is so important. Unity trumps knowledge sometimes. Sometimes we're asked to lay down what we, what we believe to be true in order to remain unified with the body of Christ. Try that message in the world today. doesn't fly. Knowledge is king. We better agree about absolutely everything or we're disunified somehow. I disagree. Marriage is a, 
perfect reflection of that. My wife does not agree with everything that I believe, nor do I always agree with everything that she wants me to agree with. But what do we have to do to foster that healthy relationship? We've got to find ways to be on the same page despite our differences. And when we're a, a, tr- a branch coming from the, a, the outside, from a worldly point of view, maybe you have no faith background. Maybe you have nothing in your background but, but tough life. And then you try and graft into the true vine. It's a little funky from time to time. As we transform and we learn God's ways and we understand who he is. But it is about that relationship with Christ. That long-term connection, that abiding. This was his main word in here. Abide in me. Abide, abide, abide. And I will abide in you. There will be this exchange of sticking with one another. Through the phases and the seasons and the fruitful years and the not-so-fruitful years. Let him be your source. The expectation of fruit. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus is talking about false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. Really, and in general, I think that can mean anybody that, that comes with a word of authority that's false. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, this uncomfortable reality that there is evaluation in the kingdom of God. Times where we have to look at things and, God forbid, I use the word, judge. Now, wait a minute, doesn't the scripture say not to judge? Okay, I just got myself into a mess here, didn't I? We are always judging in the sense that we look at things and whether or not we want to involve ourselves in them, whether we will not want to expose the people that we're leading into those things, we have to evaluate and judge like that. But we do not judge in the sense that we are put ourselves on the throne and say, that person is going to hell. That person is wrong before God. That person's never going anywhere in life. That's gross judgment. That isn't for you to decide. But you do have a responsibility to evaluate things. I'm not going to use the word judge again. Because it brings up a different imagery. So we're always doing this thing when we look at the scriptures like, I'm supposed to evaluate right and wrong. I'm even supposed to be able to rebuke people for their misbehavior from time to time, but I'm not supposed to judge? How does this work? And we understand that he sits on the throne of judgment, that we can make right judgments about things, but it's not up to us. We won't be determining the eternal destiny, and we better be really careful. Here's the other thing. The the measurement you use will be used against you. This is where I want to go crawl in a closet and cry sometimes. Because sometimes I look at my own life, and man, I can just be like, I I don't measure up, I don't measure up not good enough, not good enough, or you look at your kids or your spouse or someone else in your life, one of your friends or somebody, and you're like, they're just not measuring up. And then you go look in the mirror, and it's like, wait a minute. Makes me kind of want to lower the bar, you know, so that the measure used against me will be pretty low. (laughs) We will be known by our fruit. It's important to wrestle with. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. More uncomfortable scripture. Are you liking all the uncomfortable scripture today? Yeah, I am. Boy, I'll go home and take a nap after this. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the book of Revelation. This is John. And we talked about the lion and the lamb, the same imagery, the same areas of, uh, in the book of Revelation where we see that, that we sang about today. Same book, book of Revelation. John singing the future. Then I saw a great white throne of him and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Sounds like a powerful person. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And and the dead were judged 
by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uncomfortable? There is evaluation. There's a reckoning that will take place in creation. A day where God, we stand before God and all of our lives are called to account. This is why we're so grateful to have Jesus Christ who forgives our sins. We know that when we stand before, the, before him someday, that while we may open the book, God may open the book and, and judge and go, man, JR, you did this and this, really, really, really. And then Jesus steps in, I covered him. My blood covered him. His account is paid in full because he accepted my message. He received that grace. He grafted into the true vine. He bore fruit for the kingdom while he was alive. Overlook his offense. Come and enjoy your master's happiness. The great and dreadful day of the Lord, as the scripture calls it. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The vine is the source that we draw the inspiration for life, the details for how to live life, the understanding of who God is. It all comes from Him. Let's bring this into the practical. When you evaluate where you're at and you consider your relationship with God or where you are in need, I would point you back to the vine. Spending time in God's Word in the scripture, major source of life here. It's not just communication, okay? I know I talk about this a lot, but it's so important to understand. When God speaks, it creates. When he created, he spoke. He didn't get out a carving knife and some hammer and nails to make creation. He spoke. And creation came into being because he spoke. There's power in the words of God. So when we read his word and we connect with God's heart, there's power that proceeds from there for the transformation of life. What about your prayer life? What does prayer life look like? You know, of course, we have prayers we can recite. We can get on our knees by our bed and we can recite prayers. We can pray things. But there's also prayer where we sit quietly. Prayer is dialogue. It's speaking to God and hearing from God. Listening for the power of God in, in your own soul. Directing you with the decisions you need to make. Giving you wisdom with certain circumstances that you're facing. Bringing you relief for some of your addiction. Bringing you strength to get through your grief. All that is drawn from prayer and the Word of God relating to Him. Serving in the ways He wants you to serve contemplating who He is. In worship today, when we're singing these words, what a, what a great moment in your week to contemplate the magnificent things God has done for you. Those are all us just kind of drawing a little bit from the vine. When we pray, when we sing, when we hear from the Word, when we read the Word, when we take actions in faith and do things that God is challenging us to do because we believe it's right. All of those things draw us closer to Him closer to understanding who he is, and a deeper relationship with him. Would you stand, please? As I pray now, um, if, you're, if you're really, you know, like, like we talked earlier, just in need from God this morning, in need from the life that comes from the vine, in need of the direction, the wisdom, the breakthrough, or just the relief. Sometimes we're just burdened and we need relief from our burdens then just open your heart to God while I pray. Forget the people around you. Forget what you're going to eat for lunch. Just open your heart and, and just, even in an invisible way, invite God to bring something of himself to you this morning. Father, we invite you, Lord, to work in power in our lives today. Father, we open our hearts to you. We open our minds. Lord, come evaluate.
Lord, we pray that we want to be fruitful. We want you to come and be pleased with what you find in our lives. But Lord, we also are broken and weak with sin and issues. Father, we pray that you'd help us prune off the things that are not beneficial. Father, that you would prune back the wrong things, the misunderstandings, where we don't necessarily know your heart. Father, I pray that you would bring revelation and wisdom into our hearts to see where you're at work and to draw comfort from that. Father, I pray for those that are just struggling emotionally and mentally today, whether it be grief or depression or something along those lines. Father, I pray that you would breathe your healing power into them right now. Bringing a softening and openness. You are the great comforter. Father, I pray you'd move in power and hearts and minds this morning. Father, I pray for those that are struggling physically. You are the God that heals, even today. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to stir our faith for healing of our bodies. And for those today that are struggling, Lord, that as they submit themselves to you and open themselves up to you right now, Lord, that you would be breathing your healing power in Jesus' name in the people's bodies right now. And whatever other struggles people are finding themselves in as they evaluate, Lord, I pray that you would be drawing them near to your heart, your loving, compassionate, gracious heart in which there is power for life. I pray that that power will go into each one that asks today. I pray for openness and willingness to receive and for courage to take steps of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day, you guys.